Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week's episode comes from the archives. It's a conversation I had at Adelaide Writers Week with British medievalist Helen Castor about her biography of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, A History, is a really radical, fresh and scrupulous analysis of the evidence of the time, which brings the sensibilities of the 15th century to life in vivid detail for us in the 21st century and explains the messy politics of the war between the French and the English. Hilary Mantel, no less, is a fan of Castor's narrative gift. Now, because we were outside, there is significant noise from a helicopter and planes, but I hope you won't find them too intrusive or distracting from Helen's gripping interpretation of Joan's life. Helen, you've taken on a a historical superstar as your subject in this book, and that is both a curse and a blessing. Can you tell us a little bit about the curse and how, in a way, the curse informed your methodology? The curse is terror really um you you start to think start to read about Joan of Arc and you realize that if you could gather everything that's ever been written about her in one room you wouldn't be able to get in the door uh terrifying thousands upon thousands of words have been used and reused on this extraordinary woman um the question was why would I add to them? And what could I bring to the party, in a sense? And what I felt um, very strongly as I began to work was that there was actually room for an attempt to re-find Joan in two ways. One, as a three-dimensional, living, breathing human being. In other words, to try to get behind the layers of the saint, she's a very modern saint, wasn't made a saint till 1920, but behind the saint, behind the icon, behind the legend, behind the myth, try to find the teenage girl who Mm. lived and died in the 15th century. And the 15th century was the other crucial element for me of this, because I'm a medievalist and the 15th century is my century, if you like. I mean, it doesn't belong to me, but that's where (laughs) I started out. Um, And what I wanted to do was to see if it was possible to to put that human being back in her own world because the power of Joan's myth and her legend is so strong that she's almost beyond time now. She, mm-hmm. she has stepped away from any specific context and almost any specific meaning. She, she has, in a sense, become all things to all people. She's infinitely protean now yes. as, as a, a symbol. And what I wanted to do was to get back to the very particular time, the very particular context in which she lived and rediscover that specificity, that particularity. Now, you do this in in a very bold, very radical way in that um, you say that, that or, or it's been said about your approach, that everybody else tells this story with the benefit of hindsight. In other words, the story is told backwards with what we know uh, her achievements and her end to be. And so you decide to tell the story forwards. C- can you talk about that? Yes. Almost every book you read about Joan of Arc will start, I mean, and there are many and they are wonderful, but almost every one starts in the same way. They start in a field outside a little village in eastern France called Domremy with a young teenage girl hearing voices for the first time. And that, to me, carries two problems with it. Um, The first is that if we are in a field with a 13-year-old girl 
we know something special must be about to happen to her <laughs> because otherwise, why are we there? So in a sense, the, the, the teleology, the inevitability of her specialness is built in from the very beginning if you, if you start there. And while her story is always surprising in many ways, what you don't experience and what I wanted to capture when I wrote about it was the public stage, the political world and the utter shock of having a 17-year-old girl, a little bit further down the line in Joan's story, having a 17-year-old peasant girl walk onto the political stage out of nowhere, say she'd come from God. And I wanted to experience that shock and ask, why would anyone listen to her? Mm. Whereas if you started with her back in Domhomey, you know they're going to have to listen to her because otherwise the book's going to be very short. So that was one issue. And then the other issue is to do with the evidence and the way we know about all of this. Really, all our information about Joan's early life and that first experience of whatever her, her mission and her message was going to become, all, all our knowledge of that moment comes from two very remarkable documents, the transcripts of two trials. Joan was tried in 1431 as a heretic and condemned to death and burned. And at that trial, she was the only witness. So there are pages and pages and pages of testimony in Joan's own voice, mm. talking about her life. And then 25 years later, when she was 25 years dead, she was tried again. Once her side had won the war in which she'd, she'd fought, she was tried again posthumously in order to undo the verdict of the first trial and declare she hadn't been a heretic after all. And at that trial, you get witness testimony from people who'd known her, her family, her friends, people who'd fought alongside her, and some of the men who'd been involved in the first trial that had condemned her. But therefore, all of that testimony, Jones herself in 1431 and those of the people who, who knew her in 1456, all of that testimony is given with hindsight built in mm. because both she and, and the others knew by that stage what she'd become and what she'd achieved. So it's not simple to use the information they give about her experiences as a 13-year-old, not least because the information isn't straightforwardly coherent. Joan contradicts herself about her own experiences. She tells multiple layers of story, and so do the people who speak in 1456. So unless we hear that testimony being given in real time, if you like, as an event... It's very hard to see um, because what people have traditionally done is, is sort of cherry pick bits of biographical information and, and used it to piece together the story of the girl in the field. Mm. But that covers over minefields of, of historical difficulty. So I wanted to avoid that. And as a result, Joan doesn't turn up in my book for about 85 pages. I have to warn you if you read it. Um, but the first 85 pages are gripping nonetheless, where you cover this kind of extraordinary internecine uh, cycle of revenge from the Battle of Agincourt to the point at which Joan manifests. And I wanted to tell that story in detail because it, it matters to understand who Joan was and what she did. Normally, again, the, the story is told, Joan in the field hears her voices, goes to court, and then we'll have two paragraphs on the war that's been going on for 20 years. Sometimes a chapter, but in any case, a sort of retrospective, why is she here? And to me, it was crucial to have a sense of quite how brutal, quite how devastating that war was, um, quite how endless it seemed, because this wasn't just a war between 
the French and the invading English, which is how Joan tended to describe it. It was also a civil war within Mm. France, two sides fighting viciously, and one of those two sides had allied itself with the English invaders. So when Joan's talking about getting rid of the English, it's not simple to say, we are the French, we want the English to go. She was actually fighting her own countrymen and women many of whom believed that the English had a rightful place in France. And there's no inevitability about the fact that Joan's France ends up being the one that survives, if you like. Absolutely, yes. You really make that very clear. I hadn't really understood the sort of difference between the Burgundians and and the other mob in France until until you exposed it with this great clarity in in the book. By my count, I looked um, online the other day and I think I found about a dozen biographies of Joan that are in existence at the Mm. moment, obviously some in French and some in English. Uh, And and some famous, famous British writers have tackled this subject before. Um, Two that I wanted to ask you about, most notably Marina Warner and um, long before her, Vita Sackville West. Both of those names are very potent names. Um, So tell me a little bit about their approaches to Joan. Marina Warner's book is a tour de force. And if you haven't read it, please, please go and read it. It it has all the qualities of her wonderful writing, which is that she is so brilliant at investigating myth um, cultural echoes and re-echoes, reimaginings. In a sense, her her book is, I, I think, the best book that could possibly be written about Joan's afterlife. I mean, she does talk about Joan's life, but it's as a springboard from which then to discuss all the ways in which Joan has been figured and refigured over over the years. Um, I felt that book had been written. I couldn't hope to touch the hem of its garment, and and I'm not the right person to tackle that kind of cultural appropriation reappropriation anyway what i can what i can bring is a knowledge of of the 15th century and an attempt to reimagine that world so i hope in a sense that my book might be a kind of companion piece mm. um to marina warner's um do i make a big confession here when we come well, to vita sackville west which is which is that i had to choose what to read because there is so much that this book would not be out for another 20 years if I read everything. And I made a policy decision that actually I wanted to immerse myself in the 15th century. Mm. What I wanted to do was to go back to the original source material, um, which has been gathered together by brilliant scholars over what is now more than you know centuries. Um, and I wanted to steep myself in words that came from... Joan's lifetime, the years before and the years after. And I, I made the decision that I wanted... It, it both felt like, an, it felt like a necessity for practical reasons, but also actually in terms of the project that I felt I was embarked on. I needed to try and minimise interference from other people's Joans. <laughs> so quite often, you know, in, in talking about the book and about Joan, people will say, well, what, what, what do you think of George Bernard Shaw's Joan? What do you think of... Luc Besson's Joan, what do you think of Carl Theodore Dreyer's Joan, what do you think of previous, but you know, Mark Twain's Joan, Vita Sackville West's Joan, and so on. And I, 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 it sounds awful, but I haven't yet, I, I'm going to set aside a, a month or a year or something and, and read and watch everything. Um, but I felt I, mm. I, to do this project, I, I almost had to insulate myself from those 
imaginings and reimaginings. I think her biography is very discredited and is regarded <laughs> as, you know, appropriately as eccentric as she was rather than being a scholarly or definitive work. So you're <laughs> off the hook there. It's all right. Um, one thing that I, I'm very interested about in that sort of context that you build before um, before bringing Joan into the foreground in terms of the sort of the, the war that, that she emerges out of is that she had a fascinating early patron who enabled her to get to the Dauphin when she needed to tell him what her purpose was. And that's Yolande. Tell us about Yolande. Yolande is one of the wonderful women of the 15th century, and there are a number. Um, in, In England, for example, if you look at the Wars of the Roses, for my money, the single greatest politician on either side in the Wars of the Roses was a woman called Alice Chaucer, the Duchess of Suffolk, granddaughter of the poet, uh, who managed the almost the only person to be on the right side at every moment in the Wars of the Roses, which is a real achievement. And, and so in my mind, Yolande of Aragon, uh, a, a Spanish uh, princess who, who um, married into a uh, French... Uh, royal dynasty she's she's the Alice Chaucer of France to me she is a formidable was a formidable politician but when you encounter formidable female politicians in the middle ages their role is always shadowy because the public stage was almost by definition a male one and so Yolande's influence has to be traced in the shadows uh, in, in the in the sort of corridors behind I I can't prove to you what I think to be true about Yolande's role, I can't. There, there isn't a letter in which she says, "Go and get this young girl from um, from Lorraine and bring her to to the court." But if we're trying to piece together how it was that Joan ended up at the Dauphin's court, there are some suspects in the frame. And Yolande, who was the um, Dowager Duchess of Anjou and the Dauphin's mother-in-law, and clearly a politician, inf- infinitely greater than her son-in-law, who was a fairly hopeless specimen, it has to be said, Mm. Um, particularly as a war leader. He had a great habit of ordering himself very, very fancy suits of armour and trappings for his horse and then putting somebody else at the head of his army when it actually came to fighting. Um, but And the difference that Yolande made when she'd been away in the south of France um, tending to her own dynastic issues for a while, when she comes back to the court at Chinon, the difference is palpable immediately. And so as far as we can trace these these threads, these almost invisible threads behind the scenes, I, Yolande... Yolande's hand was at work in once news began to reach Chinon of this girl who was claiming to have a message from God for the Dauphin, claiming to be sent to lead his army. I am certain from the scraps of evidence that that, that I can put together that it was Yolande who facilitated bringing her 250 miles across country and presenting her to the Dauphin. And, of course, then we come to the moment which is the kind of clinching theatrical moment which is so irresistible for playwrights and film directors, which is this kind of pantomime test that's imposed on Joan where she has to identify the king. Would you like to tell us about that scene and why you think... Do you believe that is really what happened? I believe that something like it happened. I don't believe it happened the first time she arrived at Chinon. This is another thing about the story of Joan of Arc that we all either know or have some sort of sense of. Um, The facts, as we think they might be, when you start poking them with your finger, they start disintegrating. So, for instance, 
I say in the book, I mean, one of the things I've done in the book is that I have the narrative that I have pieced together, the best narrative that I could, I could construct. And then there's a section at the back of end notes. And in those end notes, I try to show my working and show what evidence I've used and the difficulties with the evidence. So one thing is, for example, I say in the narrative, it's the 23rd of February, 1429, when Joan arrives at Chinon. In the notes at the back, I have to confess that actually that date, like so many other facts in this story, isn't completely certain. And certainly what happens when she arrives at Chinon isn't completely certain because witnesses, as I say, in those two trials say many different things. Joan herself says different things. What I think we can say is that she did meet the Dauphin pretty quickly. The first test that was imposed upon her was a test for virginity. Mm. because she was a young unmarried girl claiming to come with a message from God. If she wasn't a virgin, case closed. No one was going to listen to her because uh, that would mean that she'd almost certainly been suborned by the devil. Um, so the first test is some ladies of the court are to inspect her, and that actually happens twice, to check mm. that her body, the integrity of her body, is, um, is clear. And if her bodily integrity is okay, then you can proceed to testing her spiritual integrity. So I think some kind of pantomime of her being brought into the court in front of everybody and um, some attempt at hiding the Dauphin among the crowd so that she could pick him out as a demonstration of her special revelation. I do think something like that happened. And two witnesses speak of it in 1456 at the second trial, but neither of them was at Chinon in February, March 1429. So, uh, you, you know, trying to take that testimony as mm. gospel truth is tricky. And I think it's much more likely that that public presentation happened at a point when it had already been decided to send her to Orléans, which was then under siege by the English, and to allow her an attempt to raise the siege as a sort of test of her mission. Mm. But by that stage, she'd already been interrogated for weeks by the best theologians that the Dauphin could muster in an attempt to um, establish whether or not she truly did come from God. They hadn't actually been able to answer that question. What they said was, she's pious, she's humble, she lives a God-fearing life, and she's a virgin, so all of those things sound plausible. We can't prove that she does come from God, but we can't prove that she doesn't, so why don't you give her a test? And that's the point at which I think this pantomime played itself out to establish Joan's public presence and she was then installed at the head of an army and sent to Orléans. Now, one of the most fascinating for me things about this book um, is the whole discussion of what she wore and the significance of what she wore. So I want to dwell on that for a moment because to me there are so many resonances, so many important details in this. Um, until I'd read your book, for example, I hadn't really understood that just the mere act of donning men's clothing was in fact blasphemous. So when she first appears on the scene, she's wearing a red dress. And that's then back home in that's in, back home. Yeah. And then she is given men's clothing, and we'll talk about the detail of that clothing. But can you just also, as well as explaining about the men's clothing, what she wore and why she wore it, talk about how this young girl who said that she had been sent by God donned men's clothing, which was an act of blasphemy. How she um, squared that with herself. It's, it's, it's a very complex issue. It's one of the most complex issues in her whole story, in a sense. The problem is that the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament says that a woman in men's clothing is an abomination unto the Lord. 
fairly clear, mm. don't do it. Um, there had been some female saints who had dressed as men, but almost always that was, I mean, I think always, that was in an attempt to disguise themselves in a, in a situation where they were in grave danger. They had to escape a an unwanted marriage or, or some kind of persecution. So they were trying to pass as men. It was a disguise. And that was less disturbing. The difficulty with Joan was she never claimed to be anything other than what she was. She was a young girl dressed as a boy. And my sense of this, I mean, as with almost everything in Joan's story, it's very hard to be completely clear about what she thought she was doing and how exactly it worked. But it seems to me that it starts as a very practical measure. She is sent to Chinon from Vaucouleurs, which is the nearest garrison town to Domremy, where she's, she's gone to ask to be sent to the, to the Dauphin. And she's given an escort of six men-at-arms to take her 250 miles across country, across very dangerous country. There's a war going on. She's, she doesn't have any other women with her. She needs to be able to ride astride a horse to make it quicker, and she needs to be able to keep, keep herself safe over many nights. It takes 11 days to, to make this journey. So wearing men's clothes is intensely practical, mm. and it seems to have started as a practical measure, both for passing unnoticed, enabling her to ride astride, and keeping herself safe because... Men's clothes in those days, the, the hose that covered the legs, were tied on to the clothes on the upper body with cords. And the descriptions we have of Joan's clothes suggest that she used many more cords than was normal to tie her, her, her leg wear onto her upper clothes. And that meant that anyone trying to rape her was going to have a much harder job than if she'd been wearing a dress. You know, the, the, it was actual practical protection. But what seems to have happened by the time she got to Chinon was that somehow this male clothing had become absorbed into her sense of her mission along with the short hair that she wore. We need to imagine her with a kind of pudding bowl above the a high pudding bowl haircut, which was all the rage among fashionable young men in the 15th century. It doesn't appeal to us at all now. But um, it, it, she seems to have internalised the wearing of male clothes as part of what she had been sent to do so that she, she then has armour made for her. We know it was very splendid armour because we know how much it cost. Um, and... After her first mission, uh, the test of her mission at Orléans, um, a, a great victory as it turns out, the Duke of Orléans, who's a prisoner back in London, sends instructions to his servants in France that a wonderful new suit of clothes should be made for her in silks, very, very fine clothes. And these are clearly men's clothes. So our image of her in our mind's eye is often she's either the peasant, you know, wearing boys' clothes or in armour. But actually we also have to imagine her, as her story goes on, as a courtier dressed in silks and furs and, and becoming a, a sort of feature around court, but a girl dressed in boys' clothes. And you say that, in fact, she, um, she is quoted as, as having a, a love of luxury and finery. Yeah. So she, she enjoyed the sensation of those Good clothes she, that were made for her. She does seem to have done. There's an extraordinary letter that survives from this period just after uh, the, the fighting at Orléans by a young nobleman called Guy de Laval, who's 22. And he arrives at court wanting to help with the war in this inspiring moment where Joan has made it clear that there are new possibilities. And he goes to see Joan and he watches her riding her war horse. I mean, she's clearly sort of acclimatised to some of the new skills she needs. And then he sits down with her to talk to her. And she calls her servants to bring him wine and she talks about the fact that she sent his grandmother, who had 
back in the day, been married to an earlier hero of the French, uh, Anglo-French wars in the 14th century. She, she'd sent his grandmother a golden ring and she apologises to him that it was a little trinket and she would have loved to have sent more. And you get this sense of Joan, you know, she's really growing into herself and he is dazzled. He says, I, I couldn't believe that I was seeing and hearing her. He can't, almost can't believe he's in her presence. So, yes, I think we have to imagine... Um, a sort of moment in her story where she is growing into the the charisma, the, the mm. place of power that she has won for herself at this royal court. It's interesting, when you describe that scene, it suddenly occurs to me to ask you, did she have any friends? That's a wonderful question. She had friends among the people who gave testimony in 1456 were people who'd known her as children. And one at least of those women says she was my friend and I cried when she left. She was kind to me. But there's no sense, no clear sense in Joan's public life that she has what I think you or I would call a friend. Mm. She has comrades in arms. Mm. So, for instance, again, in 1456, when the Duke of Alençon is talking about his memories of fighting alongside Joan... And for him, too, his career hadn't gone as he wanted it to by that stage. So he's looking back to a golden moment in his own life. There is a real sense of comradeship, of admiration, of cooperation. But there's always this sense of apartness. Friendship is an interesting question because the question I usually get is, what did all these men think of having this young woman in their midst? And that, too, is an interesting question because, again, in 1456, some of the people who fought with her give great speeches about how, of course, on campaign, you, you sleep close together and you have to change, and her page helped her dress in her armour. And a couple of these men say, well, I did once see her bare legs. Or somebody says, I saw her breasts and they were very beautiful. But they immediately go on to saying, but I never had any carnal thoughts about her of any kind. She was so holy. <laughs> and you'd be amazed how many uh, writers solemnly say... The remarkable thing is that none of the men who fought with her had any carnal feelings about her at all. And I, when I came to read this, I was thinking, there's protesting a little bit too much <laughs> going on here, these very beautiful breasts that they've glimpsed. But they weren't thinking about, you know. So uh, there is a great fascination with Joan's person, with her mm. body. Some Again, some of the soldiers who fought with her report, um, there are these one, you know, uh, the soldiers believed that she didn't menstruate. Mm. Um, whether or not that's true, we don't know. She certainly ate very sparingly, so it's possible that she that she didn't. And there's one witness um, talks of the soldiers being in awe of how long she could stay on her horse without answering the call of nature. In other words, she doesn't even pee. Um, you know, th th this great sense that her body is somehow a, a sort of inviolate, holy thing. Mm. Um, so there's a great sense of her physical presence, but friendship, mm. no, not really. Let's just go back to the clothes for a moment because there are other sort of very distressing moments yeah. uh, where, where she is forced to wear something against her will and that also goes with a very confusing time in jail when she recants briefly. Can you just take us through the yeah. sort of wardrobe malfunction yeah. sort of episode Absolutely. at the other end of her life? So this is uh, the key moment at... The, the climax of her trial in 1431, she, this was a very long trial. It was a very carefully thought through trial. It's sometimes represented as a bit of a kangaroo court, as though 
uh, it was a politicised process and that was all there was to it. You just had to rubber stamp her death and that was it. Actually, it was a very, very carefully thought through theological process. The men who were prosecuting her, French clerics, but French on the other side, under the aegis of the, of the English in Rouen, which was the capital of English France. They also held Paris, but um, they were desperately concerned to prove to the world that this girl was not what she claimed, that God was not with her, that she was in fact a heretic. So the trial went on for weeks and months, from January 1431 until May. And the sense that you get reading the testimony, and and the trial transcript is an extraordinary document, and there's a very good English translation of it available in paperback. I urge you all to go and read it. the sense that you get throughout most of them, I mean, Jones, again, her charisma, her, her confidence, her bravery is extraordinary. But the sense I get is that, as always, she was sustained by her belief that God would rescue her. She knew that God would come to rescue her before there was any question of her facing the horror of being burned at the stake. And then it comes on the 24th of May, 1431. She's, the, the trial has gone through many, many stages. But on that day, she was finally taken out into a square in Rouen for sentence to be pronounced. And the executioner is standing by with his cart ready to take her to the stake. And as the bishop who, who, le- who led the trial started to read the sentence, there's this moment of visceral horror because it suddenly becomes clear to Joan that help is not coming. And she speaks up in the middle of the sentence, she suddenly begins to speak and she says, I confess, I confess, I acknowledge my guilt, I acknowledge my heresy, and a a document is brought to her listing all her crimes, and she puts her mark to it, and she's bundled back to her cell, and at that point, all her certainty is gone, and what she's held on to all this time has been her male clothes as, as an outward manifestation of her mission in which she believed so strongly. At this point, she's bundled back to her cell, and she submits for the first time. I mean, they've, they've tried to get her to put on a dress. They've said, you can hear mass. She was desperate to hear mass. You can hear mass if you put on a dress, and she, she won't do it. But at this point, she takes off her men's clothes. She's put back in a dress, and her short hair is shaved off. And she's told that she will spend the rest of her life in prison as a, as a penitent heretic. That should have been it. That should have been the end of the trial. Her guilt was proved. Her guilt was acknowledged. Four days later, the bishop was called back to her cell and what he found was Joan in a state of profound distress you can feel it in the transcript of what she said she'd always been so clear so linear so certain of what she was saying and suddenly her answers are shifting and tangled and they they don't follow in quite the same way and what has happened she well what has happened she's put her male clothes back on as the outward sign that she has taken back her confession. It's not entirely clear what has happened in those four days that have intervened, but what she says is that her voices have told her that she has damned her soul to save her life, that she says everything I said was from fear of the fire, uh, and what I said was not true. My voices do speak the truth to me. I am sent by God. And in other words, she couldn't live with herself for having given up on her truth. And it's two days after that that she was burned. What we then learn 25 years later when the witnesses come to speak about this moment, and it's very difficult to untangle what the truth is, 25 years later when the political situation has changed completely. The English are now the villains of the peace. They've been expelled from France. Everyone who was involved in the trial is desperately trying to say it was the English, it was not us. Honestly, I always thought she was great. Um, 
But some accounts, again, conflicting accounts begin to come out, but stories that over that weekend, once she was back in a dress, back physically vulnerable in a dress, you have to remember she was held in a cell with English soldiers guarding her in her cell day and night, other soldiers outside the door. Stories begin to come out that over that weekend she had perhaps been assaulted, perhaps raped, and one more story gets told because the the question I can't answer... The question I, I, I thought about again and again for a really long time is, why were those men's clothes there for her to put on? Yes. How was it that they had not been removed? Somebody clearly had an interest in seeing her burned, seeing her relapse, um, seeing her put those clothes back on again because they were physically there in her cell for her to put on. And there is one story, again, we get conflicting, overlapping stories, but one witness in 1456 tells a story of her not having wanted to put the men's clothes back on, but having been left in a situation where her guards had removed the dress overnight mm. and she's left there beg- saying, I, 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 need to, I need to go to the loo, basically. I need to get up, I need to dress myself. I've only got the men's clothes and I'm not allowed to put them on and the guards refusing to give her the dress that she's supposed to wear. Now, that doesn't entirely fit to me with what she says herself when the bishop is called back in, that she is re, um, re-adopting the totality of her mission, which includes the clothes, but clearly very, very, very complex, difficult, traumatic things were going on over those four days mm. between the confession, the recantation and the relapse. And, and we can't get, we, we, we get glimpses and fragments, but we can't get at the truth. You, you mentioned there um, the voices. So I'm interested, obviously, I think everybody here is interested to know what your take on the voices is because what you very definitely do not do is you do not talk about mental illness and you do not talk about schizophrenia. So what do you think the voices were? First of all, just to explain why I don't talk about schizophrenia, I mean, in in, in our sort of post-Enlightenment age, we want a scientific explanation of of this phenomenon and various diagnoses have been proposed over the years schizophrenia epilepsy bovine tuberculosis has been proposed as um, something that creates abscesses in the brain that can cause hallucinations to me there's a kind of category error in reaching for diagnoses like that because no one in the 15th century thought in those terms they did believe that people could be mad one possible explanation for hearing voices was madness Mm. so that was in the frame but the most obvious explanation if someone was hearing voices was that the voices were there because everyone in the 15th century knew that this world was only part of God's creation and that heaven and hell were real places populated by angels and demons who could speak to men and women of entirely sound mind. The key question, the really difficult question, was working out, did these voices come from heaven or hell? Um, so the possibility of the reality of, the, of those voices is not in doubt and Joan is not the only person who hears voices there's a whole line of visionaries and mystics in late medieval Europe and and a line of actually female um, visionaries before Joan in early 15th century France who have heard messages from God and been taken very seriously Joan's the only one who says she's been sent to fight by her voices but she's not the only one who hears voices so for me um, it's a question of understanding in 15th century terms, what was going on. And Joan herself says many different things in the course of the evidence we have about what it was that she heard and what it was that she saw. Most of what she says comes out at her trial. 
uh, where she's under extraordinary pressure from these clerical interrogators to prove to them that what she says is true. Prove to us that your voices do come from heaven. And you have to remember that Joan is not a... They are theologians. They are scholars mm. of, of this kind of knowledge, and she is not. And what she, what she does is she starts out by saying, I heard a voice. It came with a great light to me at home in Domremy. And she says it's the voice of an angel. And then she starts talking about voices in the plural. And then she starts giving more detail about how her voices speak to her and when. And then it's only at this point, under extraordinary pressure in her trial, that she names her voices for the first time. So again, if we start the story with her hearing the voices of particular saints back in the field at Domremy, Domremy, I've got to pronounce it right, uh, it's this moment in, in the trial that we're alluding to, and she says... I heard the voices of St. Margaret, St. Catherine, St. Michael, and sometimes St. Gabriel. Now, there are various reasons why those saints in particular might make sense in that context, but she starts talking in more and more detail about their hair, their faces, the crowns they wore, and this is all in response to questioning. Did they have feet? Did they have legs? Did you see them with, the, with, the, with your bodily eyes? Did St. Margaret speak in English to you? And Joan says... Of course she didn't speak in English. Why would she when she's not on the English side? <laughs> you know, utter <laughs> cast-iron logic. But the, the point of this questioning was that the theologians knew that saints, angels, spirit, were spiritual beings who, if she had really seen them, I mean, theologians had debated this for centuries, and the conclusion they had come to was that if you had truly seen an angel, it was the spiritual essence of the angel that you ought to be describing because that was how angels were they were spiritual beings so pushing Joan into giving ever more concrete details Mm. was actually pushing her to make her angels sound like demons but she didn't know that so she tells ever more concrete stories ending up with an extraordinary moment that doesn't make it into the legend most of the time where she talks about being at Chinon with the Dauphin in front of the whole court and an angel walks into the royal presence chamber carrying a golden crown that's so beautiful that no earthly goldsmith could have made it. And he hands over the crown to the Dauphin and says, this is your sign that if you give Joan an army and put her to work, you will be crowned at Reims and you will have your kingdom. Um, and Joan says the crown is still in the royal treasury. I mean, it's, it's so concrete, this moment. And uh, you get the se- it, it How can this be? I mean, it strains credulity. It hasn't made it into her legend, partly because it seems so extraordinary. And that, to me, doesn't explain what was going on. You, you get the sense that she's trying to make her visions real and concrete so that they will have to believe her, and actually the opposite is the case. The moment that makes sense of it all, for me, is the morning of her death. The trial is all over. It's all over by the, by the burning. Mm. Um, Some of her judges, some of the clerics, come to visit her again, and this is no longer a judicial visit, it's a pastoral visit, a last attempt to save her soul before she goes to the fire. And they ask her, and she is terrified, it's clear, she she knows she faces a death of appalling horror. And they ask her, I would like to think gently, obviously tones of voice don't get recorded in the transcript, but they, they ask her, did you really see and hear what you say you you saw and you heard and she says yes whether they were good or evil spirits they appeared to me and they press her a little more they say what did you see what did you hear and she says I heard the voices most of all when the bells rang and then she says and I saw my angels 
in a great multitude as the tiniest things. And suddenly that to me is a description of a sensory experience that, that I, can, I, I can make sense of. I mean, the clanging of great church bells create echoes in the head. And one of the clerics actually says to her, lots of people think they can hear voices in the bells. And then this idea of, of seeing angels in a great multitude as the tiniest things, it, it, it summons up to me a sense of almost lights dancing in your peripheral vision. Mm. But within a 15th century religious sensibility, the possibility of translating that into the reality of heavenly beings communicating, that, is, that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, that's a moment at which the human Joan leapt off the page. It's a kind of spiritual synesthesia. Yeah, almost. extraordinary. Um, Two things that I particularly want to ask you that that come out of what you've just said. Um, We've got to remember that this is a a girl who is illiterate. She can neither read nor write. And so all her statements, all her letters to the English are dictated. Um, And I just want to read the the opening challenge, paragraph, to, to the English, because I think it's so telling in terms of her, her voice. You men of England who have no right in this kingdom of France, the king of heaven orders and commands you through me, Joan the maid, to abandon your strongholds and go back to your own country. If not, I will make a war cry that will be remembered forever. Now, <laughs> when you hear language like that, where does that confidence in the way she expressed herself, come from, given that she has no education? Well, I suppose we should... You're you're right, she can't read and write. She begins to learn as she, in her time in the public eye. Did she know how to read or write by the end of her life? Uh, She, some of her later letters, there are a handful of letters, these public letters that survive. One or two of the later ones have her name in her own handwriting at the end of them. She didn't write the letter, but... And they're clunky letters, clearly written by, you know... Uh, by someone who's learning. Uh, So no, I don't think she ever became very literate. That doesn't mean she was completely uneducated in the sense that she would have been educated at her mother's knee and by the local parish priest. Certainly some of the answers she gave at her trial clearly reflect parish teaching. There's a very famous answer she gives when the theologians ask her, uh, you know, it's, it's a trick question, kind of, does she believe she's in the grace of God? And it's, this is often held up as, a, as an example of her extraordinary theological dexterity. Actually, the signs are it, it's, it's pretty much what you would learn from parish sermons. She says, if I am, may God keep me there. If I'm not, may he put me there. Um, <laughs> in other words, you, you can't claim to know that you're in the grace of God because that would be usurping God's, God's place. So she, she is educated in the basics of her faith. She can say the Lord's Prayer and, and so on. Um, but this certainty, this utter self-belief is an extraordinary thing it comes from utter faith and conviction in her message in her purpose in the sense that God has sent her and by the time that letter is written which is by the time she knows she's going to be sent to Orléans uh, to be given soldiers to do what she believes she's been sent to do so in a sense this is the moment when it's it's almost within her grasp but she's already had to come so far she's had to leave her village of Donremy she's had to go to Vaucouleurs this local garrison town she's had to persuade her cousin's husband to take her to Vaucouleurs because of course girls can't just go gallivanting around the countryside by themselves and the first time she went to Vaucouleurs and talked to the, the captain there 
he basically told her cousin's husband to take her home and get the family to give her a few slaps because she was a fantasist, clearly. So the first time it doesn't work, she has to then go home, regroup, persuade the cousin's husband again to take her back. She eventually goes to see the Duke of Lorraine. She has to talk to him. She's brought, you know, there are so many stages of persuasion, of um, declaration of her purpose before she's got to that moment. You, you almost get the sense that by the time she has that moment of being able to speak in public, she has formed herself mm. um, and the experience she's had has formed her to a point where she can speak with that spine-tingling clarity. I mean, a war cry that will be remembered forever. Uh, the mm. details of the war are long forgotten for most of us, but Joan yeah. is still with us. So I called you a media-savvy medievalist, and I'm just wondering, how. what was the media... What, what, what were the media like around Joan in terms of how the news travelled of this girl, her victories, her power and influence? How did all of that propaganda machine work around her? It is extraordinary to watch the, the 15th century news gathering and news disseminating machine at work. Um, it's remarkably rapid, actually. I mean, of course, rumour runs like wildfire, but... In terms of being able to track the, the spread of information through documents, um, one of one amazing document, um, for example, that gives us the only physical details we have about Joan's um, appearance, we know she had dark hair. And we know that because a clerk in La Rochelle was noting down almost contemporaneously the news that was coming. It was the only seaport still held by her side in the war. And he was noting down everything he heard very, very rapidly. News clearly reached, um, for instance, the Low Countries, the Netherlands, very quickly because an Italian merchant in Bruges, writes to his father back home in Venice, saying, there's this extraordinary maid who has turned up. It seems she's another St. Catherine come to earth. And, the, and of course, the, the mercantile information networks were very, very sophisticated because merchants needed to know as much as possible what was happening when. Um, but, of course, Joan herself was also very good at... Uh, sound bites. Sound bites <laughs> and promoting her own image. I mean, in that piece, she didn't call herself Joan of Arc, that's that's a name we've attached to her. Her father was Jacques d'Arc, so that was a name in the family. But she explains at her trial that girls in her region don't take their father's name. So actually, we ought to think of her probably with her mother's surname, insofar as surnames existed, Jeannette Vouton or Jeannette Romé, which were the two names that her, her mother went by. And she says she, she was always called Jeannette at home in the village. But she called herself Joan the Maid. Hmm. Uh, and that was a name, a title she claimed for herself as part of her mission. And it's a very interesting one. La Pucelle, the word she, she claimed, is a very particular word which means a teenage girl, really, a young unmarried girl who is not a child but not yet a woman, not married, not sexually active. And, of course, it's a name with extraordinary resonance because a Pucelle, a maid, is a virgin. She's not saying she's Joan the Virgin. There is one virgin with a capital V, and that is the Queen of Heaven. But there's an association there. Mm. Joan the maid, she also, again in her trial, talks herself about herself as, she says, um, that her voices call her daughter of God. So she claims a very special status for herself that is then disseminated very quickly. And, of course, the other side, the English, are not happy about this at all. The Armagnac whore, they call her. Um, you know, a teenage girl running around with soldiers has to be a whore. But, again... There's a great sense of you only sing when you're winning here. So when she is in her full pomp and her victories are happening, her own side write about her a great deal. They talk about her a great deal. Once she's captured and she's a prisoner and it's clear that she's going to be condemned, her own side go very, very quiet. 
the one thing that happens after she's captured is that the Archbishop of Reims, who was one of the um, her king's closest counsellors, writes a letter, public letter, explaining to the king's faithful subjects what's happened. It isn't, of course, he explains, that God has abandoned the king or their side in the war. It's just that Joan had got above herself. She was too proud, too fond of luxury, and God had decided she needed to be taken down a peg or two. But that was okay because they already had another emissary from God, a boy called William the Shepherd, who's almost an anti-Joan. He's a boy, he rides side saddle on his horse, he doesn't fight, he has stigmata (laughs) on his hands and feet. And so we we don't need Joan anymore because we've got him, although he too is captured very quickly and and comes to a very sticky end. So, you you know, the the propaganda machine has to be able to move fast in many directions, Mm. has to be light Mm. on its feet. Helen Castor's approach proves how rich and rewarding it is to read a biography that goes back to the contemporary sources and testimony of those who witnessed Joan's life firsthand. She's had to scrape away layers of subsequent mythologizing, much like someone restoring a house would strip away plaster to expose the original beams holding up the whole structure. Following on from Joan, three years later, Helen wrote a brief study of Elizabeth I, another woman completely shrouded in mythology and obscured by layers of interpretation in every medium. A big thank you to Joe Dyer at Adelaide Writers' Week for sharing this recording and to former director Laura Crutch, who gave me the opportunity to talk with Helen. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. (laughs) 